Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral who is the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He is also the Executive Director of the Cyber Solarium 2.0, which is uh, the successor to the highly successful uh, Cyber Solarium uh, Commission. Uh, Mark, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bob. Before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Podcast HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Mark, uh, over the past several years, you've joined us on this program uh, to discuss the steps that we have to uh, take. Uh, you know, as I as I sort of joke, at at best, uh, deter. Uh, war in the Indo-Pacific, and at worst, uh, not lose uh, a Pacific war. Uh, and you know, you and I have been in uh, war games where you, as the Blue Force uh, leader in a Taiwan scenario, would run out of long-range strike munitions, for example, just as you worried uh, you would when you were the Indo-PACOM J3. Uh, we've you know talked about the importance of uh, better defenses. We've talked about the importance of working more closely with allies and partners. You've coalesced all of these thoughts into the five things that we have to do right now uh, in order not to lose an Indo-Pacific war? What are those five things uh, that we need to be doing with urgency? Thanks, Vago. And, and for sure, uh, you know, those war games informed me a, a lot over the last two years. And really, they're unclassified. This is not, um, you know, this is something that we can reasonably all arrive at a similar conclusion. And I came to the, the uh, feeling that there's five lines of effort that we absolutely have to execute and and succeed at. The first is we've got to enhance our ability to strike Chinese forces while minimizing the risk to US forces. Uh, This is largely about uh, torpedoes and uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, but there are a few other ways you can do it, but it's it's all services. It's land-based, sea-based, subsurface, uh, ground-based. We have to enhance that ability. You know, some of it's the LRASM, the long-range anti-ship cruise missile, uh, particularly east of Taiwan, you know, uh, attriting the uh, the PLA forces that are out there, um, establishing air control. But a lot of it's, um, you know, some of it's harpoon missiles and naval strike missiles, you know, inside the straits, you know, uh, and, and Mark 48 ADCAP torpedoes from both U.S. and, and Taiwan, uh, particularly from U.S. submarines. And, and finally, I would tell you, eventually we're going to need a cheaper, low-cost, uh, uh, weapon, either in a drone or in something launched from a uh, multiple launcher rocket system that can hit all the fishing boats, militia boats, merchants, and railroads that are coming across the Taiwan Straits. So in all possible ways, enhancing our ability to strike Chinese forces. Number two is enhancing Taiwan's ability to defend itself, making sure it has those um, you know, asymmetric capabilities to be a porcupine, anti-armor, uh, man portable anti-air systems, mine systems, both sea-based and land-based, the anti-cruise missiles I just referred to, um, and uh, and then uh, you know th- that that is kind of their warfighting capability. A lot of that uh, in their army, uh, but I also recognize they need some things prior to conflict starting. Some uh, you know the some air capability, some maritime capability to confront the the constant Chinese pressure they're feeling in the coercion campaign. So enhancing Taiwan's ability to defend itself, both through their own defense budget, which has been increasing significantly over the last seven years, they're up around 2.5% now, 
don't believe, you know, the Stockholm Institute, which is like the what people take for defense spending, looks at their singular initial defense budget. The way the Taiwan's do it is they do it kind of like with supplementals. Uh, so they started about 1.8% per year, and they end up at about 2.5% this year on defense spending. That's why there's so much confusion. But it's been going up. And if it's matched with foreign military financing grants from us, presidential drawdown authority grants, that'll really help. That's the second. The third is bolstering our kinetic resilience to Chinese power projection capabilities. Look, at some point during a conflict, China is going to place all our air bases at risk. So whether we're talking about Guam, Okinawa, Kandida, Masawa, Itsugi, uh, Iwakuni, those are all the, that's you know, obviously Guam is Guam, and the others are all the air defense uh, bases inside Japan. They're going to place them at risk. We have to either be able to, you know, rapidly redeploy from them to all kinds of other bases, but we have to have some inherent um, cruise and ballistic missile defense systems. And, and we're really kind of hurting in our in our low cost, shorter range cruise missile defense systems. You know, whatever was Hawk and IHawk 25 years ago does not exist today. And, and, and I also, one of the big hole there, hypersonic defense, we're spending money like a drunken sailor on hypersonic of, offense, about three to four billion a year. And we're spending a paltry, 200 to 300 million on hypersonic defense. I worry about an authoritarian regime like China or Russia having a capability like hypersonic offense while we don't have a defensive counterpart for it. Um, you know, that that is a condition, kind of a strategic mismatch we have not allowed to happen over the last 70 years. That was the third, was improving our kinetic resilience. Fourth is really working better with our allies and partners, you know, fighting together. And here we're talking principally about Japan and Australia as allies and Taiwan as a partner. Um, you know, we we and the Japanese really do work well in both the air and maritime environments. And, and that's a lot of hard work, but that's really the tactical level. As you get up to the operational and then the strategic levels, we have to have that same level of command and control integration that we experience there. Um, and then finally, we have to maintain a resilient and capable military nation. And you and I have talked about this a lot. This is about the cyber defense of our critical infrastructure, right. both for military mobility, you know, getting forces, that's the it's the uh, rail, maritime, air, highway systems, getting our forces out to the A-pods and S-pods to move, but also in our national economic uh, power, you know, having the, the having all our, um, all, all the, the U.S. exchanges working, having our electrical power grid functioning, our financial services functioning, so that we can, uh, you know, enforce economic uh, cost imposition on the Chinese because, uh, you know, through sanctions and and uh, export uh, and currency limitations and such. Um, so that resilient uh, and capable military nation. So across those five steps, that's a lot of work, but I think every, if you take this like an elephant and eat it one piece at a time, it's absolutely something the United States can get done uh, by 2027. What are the three things that have to happen by the end of the year? These three things are gonna happen in two events. One's the NDAA conference, the National Defense Authorization Act conference. And the other is the conferencing of the appropriate, the defense and state department appropriations bills. So those three things are really in the authorization bill. You know, we have to make sure that we're pushing continued um, innovation, you know, making sure, are we looking at, you know, kind of directing the department, you know, look at an expedited delivery of harpoon missile systems, prioritize Taiwan in the FMS, the foreign military sales backlog, um, you know, building, um, uh, you know, uh, building better capabilities, finding an affordable, you know, that affordable anti-ship 
weapon I talked about. When I say affordable, I mean under $100,000 a shot, maybe under $50,000 a shot. Maybe it's a drone and maybe it's something launched from a rocket, like a, a small diameter bomb. You know, getting El Rasm that El Rasm mentioned under the B-52s, unbelievably still not an Air Force priority. And, and ensuring that like the Joint Force headquarters responsible for the Western Pacific is integrating properly with the Japanese and Australians to get to that operational level I was talking about. Um, the seconds in the um, in the uh, approach on the defense side, we have to make sure that the presidential drawdown authority um, for Taiwan, which is authorized at a billion a year, in which to their credit, Secretary Austin and his team have already started doing without the appropriations, just based on the authorization, but make sure we're appropriating a billion dollars a year for that. That is the fastest way to get you know, older U.S. equipment to the Taiwans right now. And there's equipment that Taiwan could use that is available that would be useful for that. In fact, we already transferred about $350 million this year. We would do more, I'm sure, but it isn't appropriated. So that's got to be appropriated. On the, on, the, um, on, the, uh, on the U.S. side of that ledger in the appropriations, it's making sure that we're putting in the munitions for regional stockpiles. They were authorized up to $900 million over three years. Uh, zero has been appropriated and making sure that U.S. systems that build a plant gets all the multi-year contracts he asked for, for, for El Rasm, for AMRAM, for SM6, you know, for all these systems, along with the systems for Ukraine um, that he asked for and making sure that we're doing what Kath Hicks said, which is build every one of these China specific munitions, build the max we can this year and then recognizing that's a, not enough enhance the level that we can build in future years. She had that language just right. And so we need to do that. Final thing is in the um, State Department's authorizations, uh, get the FMF for Taiwan up. Now, a, a useful idiot has appeared and the Egyptian FMF is about to get knee, you know, kneecapped a further, I think, 235 million. And I would take that money, put it into the couple hundred million they've already set aside from Taiwan, some of which was from Egypt and some was from a global fund, and, and get it, get that number up to at least $500 million in FMF for Taiwan and FY24. It's not the $2 billion that was authorized, but it is a big first chunk. Just averted a government shutdown uh, in another 40 or so days. We're going to wash, rinse, uh, repeat. We might end up doing it again uh, by uh, Christmas, right? I mean, so when you talk about by the end of the year, uh, Lord's Lord's intervention may be necessary in order to try to, or, or political reason as, as, as well. How much more money, Mark, is it going to cost? Because fighting a war, much less losing it, is a lot more expensive than what the amount of money we're talking about. What's the amount of money? Because every single one of the service uh, secretaries, uh, as well as Secretary Austin and Dr. Hicks, are up against budget targets that are forcing some very tough choices within each of the services, right? What is the extra amount that's going to be necessary to do this stuff and to do it in at, the, at, at a relevant speed? So that is a great question because that's the honest point, right? You have to be brutally honest about these things. And what I have talked about in here is between, depending on the year, between 2.5 and 3.5 billion a year. So over three years, about $10 billion with, with one exception. I'll talk about that in a second. So this, you know, whether it's the FMF, the presidential order authority, those are about 50% of it. And the other 50% is in munitions, uh, U.S. munitions capability and some munitions stowage for Taiwan. Uh, they could be used by other country, either country, but as, if it's in Taiwan at game start, 
probably being used by Taiwan forces. So it's about 10 billion over three years, three and a half billion a year. As you know, in an $880 billion budget, I'm talking about less than 0.5% of the defense budget. Now, there, here's the one kicker, hypersonic defense. Um, when I say we're under investing, I mean, we're under investing by four or five times. We should be moving. There are in hypersonic defense, there are capable systems there that we are literally holding up because we want to bring in another system to compete with it. Now, normally in a, in a total take your time event, that'd be fine. But we're not in your normal event here in hypersonic defense. We are very behind on this. We have to treat this like like we allowed Shriver to treat ICBM development in the mm -hmm. 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, which means when he fails 18 times in a row, we're like, hey, let's do test 19. Right um, now, look, I'm not for 18 tests in a row, failures in a row. We have a lot more modeling and capabilities that will present, prevent that. But I am for moving out. If we've got a system ready to go at one of the companies, put the money on it, let it ride. And then when the next company is ready. Put the money on and let it ride. This is one of those times. Hypersonic defense is one of those times where we have to like break the chains of like of uh, of uh, DoD procurement bureaucracy and say bullshit to this. We will fund each one as they come through, and then we'll cancel one if we want to. We can cancel one of them, whoever turns out to be best. But my guess is we're going to need all of them, and so I would be betting on these, and I would not be holding things up. It is to me, it is absolutely insane that we would allow the an authoritarian state to develop an offensive capability and restrain our development of a defensive capability because we're worried about creating an anti-competitive environment. Um, I mean, what, just saying it makes my head spin. You know, we absolutely have to get moving on hypersonic defense. Now, I say this because that could easily grow to one to two billion dollars a year on its own over the next three to four years. If we do it right, I'm afraid we won't. What is the system uh, that you have in mind that actually is able to do this, right? I mean, because you can argue uh, the Patriot was adapted successfully in order to intercept Kinjal, right? I mean, that was a capability that a lot of people didn't believe Patriot was going to be able to deliver. Um, what is the system that is available now that we need to be putting some money behind, even if we're going to develop uh, alternatives and, and competing systems in the future? Yeah. So right now we have a very limited terminal capability. We should continue separately from this. We should continue to develop that. But what I'm talking about is getting something to intercept in the mid course of a uh, of a hypersonic uh, uh, a weapon coming at you. And that's going to be the glide phase interceptor. Right. Uh, you know, that's what we need to invest in. So as, as each company gets across the finish line and having something that's ready to go into testing and and the validation and low rate, low, low, low rate initial production, we should be pushing them across. And it's one of those things where, you know, we need, it's okay to have two, you know, that, believe me, if my choice is I can have one of them 10, 12 years from now, like, like Frank Kendall's intimating may happen under this system, um, you know, 2035 kind of delivery, or I can have, uh, you know, one of them in 2029 and one of them in 2032, I'll take number two, I'll take the slightly exorbitant value of number two, uh, you know, which is funding each system as it becomes available right. again. To me, uh, these these are it's about the glide phase. It's about thinning the herd. We cannot rely on these terminal based systems to knock out tons of hypersonics and final approach. What, what but how, Mark, do we do this? Right. I mean, you, you mentioned Secretary Kendall. Um, you know, he is one of the leaders in the department that is pushing with incredible urgency uh, to field a new generation of capability, uh, talks about the importance of speed, talks about the stakes of not getting it right. Uh, right uh, now, Chairman Brown uh, has been talking about empowering people, move, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, execute, beg, 
uh, you know, don't ask for permission, beg for forgiveness, which is a very Navy concept uh, com coming from a, an airman, which is a service of the book, uh, if, if you will. Um, and yet, if you go and talk to other people in the administration, they feel that there is a much wider window, right? Let's, let's not get hyperbolic. Let's not get crazy about this. How do you move with a sense of urgency if the administration itself at the senior most level feel that they might have actually more time than we might? First, I would say on the hypersonics, the, the bad news is the current timeline doesn't meet the most optimistic, like we could wait to 2032 or 2033. You know what I mean? That the hypersonics are making a case. But in terms of all the other stuff I've been arguing for, the 10 billion over the next three years, look, if somehow um, I'm in, you know, that, that, that they're incorrect and myself and CQ and Frank Kendall and the others are saying, hey, let's uh, let's take an aggressive approach to this, that we're wrong by two or three years. How have we hurt ourselves by achieving a deterrent position two to three years earlier. In fact, deterrence is the constant application of the belief that you have the capabilities and the credible willingness to use them. And the, the, you know, the longer you can put the, the deterrence compress on the Chinese forehead, the more they're gonna realize that this is not you know, the, uh, an appropriate move for them. So. I would be thrilled if we achieved a deterrent position three years early. I suspect we won't. I suspect what we really have to worry about is how long is the gap between they're ready to, when they're ready to go and may have a willingness to go, and we don't have the credible capability, the, either the, you know, the capabilities ready to, to oppose it. So, look, I'd love to have the luxury of being three years early. Um, I suspect we won't be. And I, and I think anyone who's arguing that we should go slower is uh, living in a fantasy land. And what are some of the demonstrable, right? I mean, the, the, we have a tendency of talking about Chinese capabilities in the broad, right? As opposed to the specific things they're able to do. And we're increasingly getting a sense, and especially those of us who've been listening to this and really paying attention, the Chinese have actually been demonstrating some pretty impressive capabilities over the last dozen years, to be honest. Um, we may have overlooked them. We may have gotten into Talmudic debates about, you know, what their intentions are. But the reality is, what what is the state of their demonstrated, what is the state of the capabilities we know they have that are highly problematic that folks should bear in mind, uh, Mark? So first, I'll get it. it kinetically, it's the anti-ship ballistic missile capabilities, the long-range, intermittent-range uh, ballistic missiles, and all, and the cruise missiles across all launch platforms, all target aspects, right? Air, ground, um, and, you know, and and, uh, and ship sub subsurface launch against both ship and ground targets. So anti-ship cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, and anti-ship ballistic missiles. And, and, and here's my concern. People go, well, you know, they haven't fought anybody in 70 years. But I would mention that our Navy hasn't fought a near pair adversary in 70 years and our Air Force in about 50 years at some point, you know, the, the midway through the Vietnam War. Um, you know, the, my point on this is uh, the kind of weapons that I'm talking about here don't require like six years of deployments in Iraq or Afghanistan to be competent at. You know what I mean? Right. They're, they're, they're really something that's more. Um, you know, mechan you know, engineering like in their capabilities, and they're demonstrating that that. that. Uh, the other place I really think they have significant capabilities that we should be concerned about are in electronic warfare and in uh, offensive cyber. 
Uh, I think the NSA, the National Security Agency, has been hinting at this cyber problem for the last couple months with the uh, intentional leaks they're doing, talking about malware installations in in uh, Guam and the in the continental United States, uh, Japan seeing them as well. I mean, clearly they have these capabilities. Look, I, there are a few places where I think you you have to you know, take a Harry S. Truman, you know, show me attitude, and, and uh, you know, and that might be an air to ground, you know, combat, you know, integrated air to ground combat where they're supporting ground forces that have achieved a lodgement in Taiwan with close air support. I don't know that they can do that. Um, I, I I don't know. You know. I think that's a hard thing to do, and I think you need to practice it. And I don't know that we've seen enough of that. And I think the same thing in like large, you know, formation air, you know, fifth generation air combat with the United States. I think they they might struggle more than they think. There's a couple of areas like that where our training, the quality of our training and operational environments may give us an advantage. But these are pretty limited. And if and if right. all of our forces have been struck and moved back, you know, beyond the first and second island chain, what I just mentioned is you know, not going to limit them that much. So we have to be very careful here. They have capability, and I believe they have an ability to utilize it. Um, now, I, what I don't know is that final little bit of integration, but but I, I'd hate to wait till then to find out, you know, right. for you and me to have in this podcast in the middle of a seven-day war. Um, I would uh, also point out, right, I mean, the U.S. Navy too often devolves to, well, you know, the aircraft carrier moves. Uh, okay, I mean, the aircraft carrier moves, but that weapon moves um, much faster. Uh, and it also assumes, right, that there isn't a concomitant cyber uh, engagement, for example, uh, that could handicap the maneuverability of the ship or, or, or uh, powertrain or what, what have you of uh, warships in general. Um, let me take you to the question of production. You know, you mentioned Dr. LaPlante. Uh, and you mentioned uh, Dr. Hicks as well, uh, right? I mean, the replicator effort is designed, uh, you know, a bill has been pushing to uh, accelerate production as much as possible. And there's a lot of investment that's gone into that. We'll get into some specific weapon systems in a minute. Um, Dr. Hicks is pushing the replicator initiative in order to be able to get non-traditional defense suppliers to build stuff in volume, uh, which is uh, very important, right? To harness companies that that might be good at mass production. Uh, you could easily see an automaker, you could see a General Motors or somebody maybe be able to build stuff uh, in, in greater volume and at greater speed, for example, and maybe with a little bit more finesse production engineering than maybe defense contractors. But on each and every single one of the weapon systems you discussed, Mark, we have backups. We've been trying to increase uh, Mark 48 uh, advanced capability uh, torpedo production for years, still lagging. We've been trying to push LRASM, JASM ER, uh, and, and still not going to hit a sweet spot in production for another couple of years. We've been trying to get to two nuclear attack boats a year. Uh, we're not there yet. It's going to be years before we get there, if at all, unless we make a massive investment, right? And, and AUKUS complicates that picture. And we don't even have enough dry dock capacity to repair the submarine. You know, the submarine force is aching because we can't even get these ships through availability, uh, ultimately. All of these are, are metrics what are what's the broader sort of integrated industrial plan that has to go with this? Because I couldn't agree with you more. But we should have this capability. But is it is this a two or three billion dollar extra a year uh, initiative, or or is it actually tens of billions of dollars a year that we have to be pouring into industrial facilitization across the piece, including building new dry docks and and hiring the people to man them. So, I mean, if you look broadly at the whole military and not just at the five things I was drawing out, 
we probably do have a lot of investment that's needed in the defense industrial base. And I'll stipulate, I agree with everything else you uh, you said, you know, every example you gave there was spot on. Um, what, I'll, what I'll say is we absolutely have to do what Dr. LaPlante was arguing for, which is investing in, you know, build, buying max production capability currently on the lines and then, and then working with the company, both of us investing to increase that max production. You know, when you say things like we've been working on LRASM, that's people like you and I on the outside saying we should build, or when I was on the Center of Services Committee or at PACOM saying we should build more LRASM, but the services in the end between our Navy and Air Force would only order 40 a year, 30 a year. Well, you right. know, when you tell a factory that, a factory says I can build 100 a year, but you order 40 a year for five years, guess what the new max production rate is at that factory? 40. Right. And so now when we want to go back up to 100 or maybe even 200, we have to they have to invest in workforce. We have to invest together in extra machinery capability to get going to that. Uh, and then we have to commit to multi-year buys at that, because if you're the company, you're like, hey, I remember when you asked for 100 before, but then only I ordered 40. Um, I'd like a little more of an agreement that we're actually going to build 100 to 200 a year. So part of its money, part of it's a commitment. Um, and and uh, the appropriations committees have a little commitment phobia. And, and it's because the DOD says we're going to build, you know, four years of this at 200 a year and then says, oh, a new whammy dime thing came up. We want to now build that instead. You know, and the appropriators like, well, we already put money into this. So we have to have some consistent discipline about what we need and then buy it. Um, you mentioned replicator. I just want to say, look, I understand that replicator was probably a, uh, a speech before it was a program, and that's being generous, um, but it is a good idea. And the fact that it may not have been rolled out in the typical way of like, hey, here's all the depth behind what I'm saying in the speech, we can get that depth. And that depth is right. to, is the ability to take risk. Uh, you, you, you and I can probably only name two or three out of 200 programs that have, quote, failed, right? Amazingly, DOD has a 90, you know, the, the defense industrial base, have a 99 point something percent success rate on systems, whereas the whole rest of the economy, particularly in startups, you know, can have like a 30 percent success rate. Um, you know, and, and the answer is the reason is that the, we just keep doubling down with money and money and money and effort and changing requirements until we get to yes, until we eventually have a DDG 1000 at seven billion dollars a copy. Right. You know, we will eventually succeed, you know, full speed ahead. What we actually have to do here is in replicators say, we're throwing money at a bunch of things. And when we decide you're not gonna work, we pull we pull your ticket and we don't fire the, the program executive because here's what will happen. If, you, if the program executive thinks she or he's gonna get fired, they're not gonna fail, but they're not gonna fail, not because they'll succeed, but because they'll somehow figure out how to get more money or change the requirements or do something different. We have to say, forget that, come up with an idea, put it into development. At point at the 12 month, 18 month, 24 month point, we'll either double down on the investment in you or we'll pull the money right. and we'll pull the effort. And no one's be and, and this doesn't ruin you. Right. But but the right. problem is I'm talking about in a way that is not normal in DOD procurement. So they have to break that paradigm. If they do that, they'll be successful because there are opportunities. You know, I talked one of the women, we have to have this low cost attributable anti-ship. Uh, weapon. And it might be that it's a drone. Maybe it's an Anduril or a SkyDO. Some U.S. drone company figures it out. Maybe it's Boeing or Lockheed, someone strapping a bomb with a little anti-ship cruise missile, you know, seeker 
had you know a very basic thing on top of it and shooting it from a from a multiple launch rocket system. I don't know what the right is. Maybe it's both. You know, right. but let's start investing in these and getting them out there. And look, the, the person who's going to be most concerned about this is President Xi, because the more things we introduce into the complex, you know, decision making of what do I do? Is it safe for me to do this invasion? The the more deterrence succeeds. Um, we, we've got uh, just uh, about three minutes left and I've got two uh, questions. Uh, question uh, one is, um, you know, we, we have been core to Japanese uh, security since the end of World War II. Uh, and yet there are still too many disconnects in, uh, I know that uh, even as J3, when you were in Indo-PACOM, there was a big effort to try to address some of these uh, shortcomings. But what are some of the things we need to be doing with our closest allies to bring them together and actually start to practice the way we would actually have to fight? Because the United States does its thing in Japan, Japan does its thing in Japan, and we don't necessarily work as much together as we should to get really good at that game. And especially if we're going to do an away game where U.S. and Japanese forces are going to be and Australian forces are going to be working and our European allies, by the way. Uh, maybe working uh, to either better defend Taiwan uh, or have to fight uh, to take it back. Yeah. So, I mean, you've hit on the important principles there. The first is we have to absolutely um, have a operational strategic level integration with Japan and Australia. They're the two most likely war fighters in the region, um, you know, that we, that we're going to have to work well with together. I, I would like to see the, um, Joint Standing Task Force that was in the last NDA be kind of enhanced the language in this one to say very specifically, four star command, what you know, west of uh, you know, in, inside the second island chain that with multiple potential C2 headquarters places, um, very mobile and agile, uh, but working on a, a you know, in peacetime with the jock in Australia and with the which is the joint operations center, the Australians have their one combatant command. And then the point, the permanent joint headquarters being set up in Japan, they're, they're one effective COCOM, you know, getting the kind of integration with them, doing the exercising, developing the decisions for the politicians so we can also work the political decision making, which could go slow with Japan if we're not careful. In both those countries, Japan and Australia, I, I'm confident we'll have access in a Taiwan scenario. And in both countries, I'm more and more confident we'll have forced contribution. I think almost locked in on Australia and put pretty close to likely in Japan, who now describes a threat to Taiwan as an existential threat uh, to Japan uh, more frequently. So that's important. And then finally, we have to start doing the same with the Taiwans. We have to be doing air and naval exercises you know, um, with them routinely. Uh, there won't be many of them left at problem start, but we have to be working with them. So, you know, we, at a minimum, don't shoot each other. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the worst possible scenario. Let me ask you one last uh, question because we've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, there are those who say that we're not buying uh, the right things, that we're surging production of the wrong things at the wrong time, for example, javelins and stingers. Uh, and there is a sense that, well, the Ukrainians really don't need those uh, anymore, sort of missing the point that we would need those systems ourselves in a future scrape, whether in, in Europe or, or elsewhere. Um, as we're starting to open up the, you know, and I, I think even uh, Dr. LaPlante got kind of caught up in this, that, you know, we might not need well, 155 rounds in Taiwan, which I think you're going to disagree about. Uh, you know, are, are, as we open up these taps, what do people need to bear in mind about what is it we need? Because we will need javelins and stingers and artillery shells and GMLRS and a lot of things, even in uh, Taiwan or the Indo-Pacific. 
You know, that's a great point. Uh, two, two issues here. One, we absolutely need some of those same anti-armor um, artillery and air defense rounds uh, in Taiwan and, you know, Korea needs them. Dr. LaPlante did acknowledge that. Uh, you know, we need to restore the systems we took out of some of the stuff we took out of there. But we have to replenish our own stowage where we've stripped that down a little bit. And some of our Eastern European allies did the same. So it's procurement for them. You know, they pay and, you know, we're, we're getting them back in there. And that and then finally, um, uh, you know, we uh, you know, the, these systems, uh, we have to store U.S. 155 in Taiwan, which would probably turn over the Taiwans in wartime. So, yes, we need all those things. And by the way, the, the, the Ukraine effort isn't isn't hurting here. The Ukraine effort is actually restore all our munitions were suffering until February 22nd of, of last year. Right. And then after the um, uh, after the Russian invasion, um, all we recognize the shortfall in our munitions production, both for the rounds that we need in Ukraine, but also for the rounds for Taiwan, uh, you know, and, including the long range uh, anti-ship cruise missiles. So it's really been a positive effort in munitions on this. And and the Ukraine thing has also demonstrated the, the, the core to deterrence is capabilities plus the credible belief you'll use them. So as long as we continue to be that supporting agent in Ukraine, we're going to restore the credible belief that we could use them, which was hurt a little bit by Afghanistan, but more broadly by the long-term commitment towards the Middle East that was hard for some of our Asian partners to believe that we would come out of that. I think Ukraine's helped demonstrate we are coming out of it, and it's demonstrating, and this capabilities production I'm talking about will give us the capabilities, there'll be a credible belief we can use it, we can achieve deterrence, and that is obviously the goal for the United States in a Western Pacific scenario. Mark, always uh, an honor and pleasure. Uh, great work, uh, as uh, always, uh, and look forward to having you on regularly to try to sell this, uh, because I think it's uh, something that's critically important. There's a window. The other guys got a window. We are doing a whole bunch of things that perhaps buy us more time, um, but ultimately, there's nothing like capability. Uh, and and so, you know, th thanks very much for focusing attention on something very important. Well, thank you for asking, Vago, and you're absolutely right. This is about restoring the capabilities end of the uh, of the deterrent seesaw. Thanks very much again, Mark.